Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the show. My name is Scott Wiley, and you're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about Accident Man 2, Hitman's Holiday, or just Accident Man, Hitman's Holiday. This is a sequel to the original Accident Man that released, I want to say, in 2016, starring Scott Adkins and Ray Stevenson and a bunch of cool people. The sequel was long-awaited, much-anticipated, and majorly hyped. Joining me today, as you will have seen from the title of the episode, is Andy Gorham. He needs no introduction, and obviously you'll hear him very shortly, but he's been on the show multiple times. But in the context of this episode, he and I already have done an episode on Accident Man. So if you want to listen to that first, feel free to go and track it down. It won't be hard to find. It wasn't that long ago. Now, the first thing I need to say very quickly is this episode was recorded before the passing of Ray Stevenson. So there's going to be some comments and some suggestions for a potential Accident Man 3 that you're probably going to wonder, well, that obviously can't happen. Well, we recorded this a couple weeks before, unfortunately, it was announced that he'd passed. So we didn't know that at the time of recording. But one thing that will come through is that one of the best elements of both of the Accident Man films is Ray Stevenson. And he is definitely going to be missed. And he will be covered on this show again in the future. There's definitely at least one film that's already on the docket for people to come on and talk about. And there's a couple of other projects that I really want to dive into that some of which I've never even seen. So I'm excited to do all of that. But Ray will be missed, man. And I wish the next project that he's coming out in Star Wars Ahsoka all the best luck in the world to be, you know, a fantastic final performance for Everybody to see, because let's face it, more people are going to watch Ahsoka than I've probably seen Accident Man. With that as well, I want to announce, for those that don't know, that soon we will be doing my season of Shinobi. Action Addicts will be doing an entire period of time devoted to ninja movies, and we will mostly be focusing on those found in the 80s and a couple in the 90s. There will be some outliers and a couple of surprises that might make you go, huh? But... For the most part, we will be sticking to the classics. I did a post on the platform formerly known as Twitter, and that went viral, or at least as viral as something can go for our show at the moment, and lots and lots of people gave feedback on what they'd like to hear, and I'm pretty much going to try and do all of them, which is why instead of it being like a ninja month, we're going to do a season, and that pretty much gives me the leeway to just make it last as long as it needs to. I don't think it's going to be like a three month long thing or something because, I mean, people that don't like ninja movies might get a tad bored of that. But a lot of these I'm really excited to cover. I haven't haven't I either haven't seen these in an exceptionally long time or I've never seen them at all. So the American Ninja, for example, is one of them. And uh, I'm really curious to see why so many people brought it up and its various sequels. But I don't know if we'll do the sequels this time around but we'll definitely be doing the first one so with that said i hope you're excited that will probably start sometime in the first couple weeks of august but don't quote me on that it really does depend how the next week goes because i will once again be traveling 
uh, and won't actually be around next week to record anything, which is unplanned, but it means that I'm going to I'm gonna be on a bit of a tighter deadline than normal to get these ninja episodes done, which might actually be a good thing, but we'll see how it goes. Anyway, you came here to listen to me talk about Accident Man 2, so I'm going to throw you over to myself and Andy now, and I will see you for the outro. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. We're back in the live room, and as you will have seen by the title of today's episode, and I'm really going to work on not repeating myself in my intros, but we are going to be talking about Accident Man, Hitman's Holiday, a.k.a. Accident Man 2. And with me, we have returning guest, and I very nearly said returning champion, because it's a Scott Atkins film, Andy Gorham. How are you doing today, Andy? I am wonderful, sir. Thank you for having me on. Really looking forward to talk. One of my favorite action movies of last year. Yes, and for those who are either discovering us for the first time due to this film being quite popular or just have missed it, Andy and I already have a discussion talking about the first film, Accident Man, and we pretty much said then that we were going to come back and talk about the sequel because the sequel was out when we made the episode, and we were really, really trying to not just do a good direct comparison of the two films. So we're going to try and do the same thing here. But I will just say off the bat, we do have to kind of address some of what we said in that other episode because we made so many comparisons. But first and foremost, what did you think of this film when you first watched it? Oh, when I first watched it, I was on cloud uh, cloud nine. It was one of those I was hoping to get it like we had friends that get screeners. And then our friends watched it and said, you don't want to watch this on a crappy screener copy. You want to wait till it's released fully. So I was like, all right, fine. And sure enough, I just had a smile on my face from ear to ear watching it the first time through. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. I remember those conversations. And yeah, I think I think I actually was offered a screener, not directly, but like, yeah, as you said, we we have people in the know. And uh, I, I was the same. I, I didn't wait until people said we shouldn't. I was like, no, no, I've got I, I have had screeners in the past. I've got a couple at time of recording waiting for me to do reviews on. And it's never the most ideal way to watch something, but it's you got to do what you got to do. Right. My personal thoughts very much echo yours. It was really interesting rewatching it so far removed from that original first watch for this episode, because I think I had a different appreciation for it. But also, I think I noticed more flaws this time around, not in like <laughs> not in like the film, but more more noticing sort of budgetary constraints, you know? Yeah. Which, which when you first watch a film, you kind of don't even register them because you're just so engrossed in like, oh, my God, this is awesome. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the people that don't know, obviously, we're going to talk about spoilers. But uh, this film is a sequel to Accident Man, and it picks off pretty much where the other film ended. And our main character, Mike Fallon, is now in Malta. And for those who don't know, it is not the place where Maltese has come from, much to Mike Fallon's disappointment. Which we've now learned is complete and utter bullshit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, he's basically started up being a hitman contractor again out there. It's a great location. He's so close to so many major assassination hit spots. And he's away from the Oasis and all of the crap that went down there. But he's kind of struggling with all the crap that went on in the first film. And that's an aspect of the story that I really like. He's uh, got some new contacts here. And yeah, something 
really crazy happens in the film, but we won't we won't skip ahead too much. But uh, what did you think of the opening of this film? Did it did it do a good job of getting you right back into that character? Uh, yes, it did, and I I like that they kept the uh, the Scott Atkins voiceover as Mike Fallon kind of going. Mm. I was wondering if they were going to do that throughout the movie because you know the the first one re- really relies on that to give you a lot of background and a lot of uh, you know like character stuff. But uh, no, this one just drops you right in. It looks visually cool; like they definitely used every ounce of their budget to make it look as good as they could. Um, and yeah, I just. It's just from the moment gets going, it's a lot more colorful, a lot more fun. So just kind of a different tone and feel. Yeah, I mean, if you're comparing the locations and the scenic view of Malta to London, uh, it's not really a fair comparison. And I do like the fact as well that even though this definitely does have a different feel, feel to the first film, they do make great efforts to keep Mike Fallon connected to how he was in the first film because in my opinion he is a softer version of mike fallon but Mm -hmm. they do like in that like i said in this opening segment we see that he still has his temper like when he finds out that you can't get maltesers in malta and that's not where they're made and he goes on a rage and there's multiple points of the film where he just gets really really wound up by stuff that shouldn't wind him up and he just has such an over-the-top reaction which of course in retrospect, is exactly how Big Ray acts. So it's not really that surprising that Fallon acts like that. True, true. And we say a softer edge, but it's maybe you could look at it as a slightly more evolved Mike Fallon than we saw before, which, you know, after all the shit that he went through in the previous one, yeah, it makes sense that he'd be a lot more introspective and things like that, you know, versus just how he used to be, very kind of carefree and just only looking out for himself type thing. But, um, but yeah, and yeah, that poor that poor Maltese shop owner just has to pick up all the mess. Cause... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that whole opening segment really does feel like the first accident, man. I I really like the narration in the first film, and there isn't anywhere near as much of it in this one, which I do miss. I miss some of that. But I also, as we'll get into it, because this film feels different and is executed differently, I don't. I think, you know, they they pull back on the narration because it wouldn't fit into the flow of the film as well as it does in the first one. And part of that is because this film is not directed by the same person. The first film was obviously directed by Jesse V. Johnston, and this film is being done by George and Harry Kirby, which, if I remember correctly, is like their first proper feature film, even though they'd actually done a lot of short films and they're, you know, great stuntmen, stunt coordinators. So they've done a lot of like second unit direction. And fun fact, just as a thing for me, I've actually met these guys. Do tell, please. Uh, a long, long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. No, um, <laughs> I had totally forgotten that I was familiar with these guys because when I listened to their Art of Action episode and I saw them comment on YouTube, they commented from their production channel, which is k and I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, k Productions or something like that. Yeah. Well, when I saw that logo a little neuron in the back of my brain went, I know these guys. And if you go on their channel and go way the fuck back, and they say this in their episode, they started making fan films. And one of the films that they made was, I can't quite remember the title, but it was like Cable Light of Hope or something like that. Well, 
I was at the premiere of that short film at London MCM Comic Con. And they were there with the cast to answer questions and, you know, have autographs and meet. And it's so funny to me that they're now directing a Scott Adkins accident man film. It's just so funny how these things work out. <laughs> yes, it is. And it's one of those things that when you go to Comic-Cons, if there are panels or stuff that you don't think you want to go to, but they involve like, you know, YouTube creators and things like that go because you could see something like this and then you know 15 years later you're watching them direct scott atkins in one of the best movies of 2022 <laughs> well it's funny because i was i'm really trying to remember which year it was that that came out i don't think it was the same convention no it, it definitely wasn't the same convention but obviously as said in the jean paul lee episode that i met the cast of street fighter assassin's fist when they did their blu-ray release premiere panel thing which was the same convention that Scott Adkins was at to promote the original Accident Man. So it is funny the way these things go, like especially in England, it's such a limited scope of where you can promote these things. London MCM is pretty much guaranteed to have stuff like this, that you are either going to see the future creators or you're going to see like whatever big thing is happening now because there's very limited spaces you could realistically take them. <laughs> Uh, real quick, before we go further, you just mentioned Jean uh, uh, Paul Lai. And I have to say, thank you for having me back on after having the likes of Marshall Teague, the, you know, uh, dropouts, you had Aaron Vargas, you have all these awesome people. You're like, yeah, I'll talk to that dork from Michigan again about accident, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> hey, man. I mean, I've got an episode hopefully dropping today um, at the time of recording. Because by the time people hear this, it, you know, the Jean Pouli episode and today's episode will be a few weeks old. But my point was, is that, you know, everybody's opinion is valid. And somebody was saying, oh, that was it. So somebody else for a future episode was talking about the fact that they are the same as you. And they're like, I'm glad that you're having me on, but I don't know if I feel qualified. And it's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, have you watched the film? Yes. Do you have opinions about it? Yes. Cool. Come on and tell me what they are. Like, that's, that's all I need. It doesn't matter. It's all good. <laughs> okay, would you and all of our Twitter friends let me be self-deprecating for just a little bit, please? I try and you guys just slap me down and say you're worthy of being on here. Now shut up and let's talk about the movie. So, okay, thank you. I appreciate you. <laughs> so, yeah, we get this intro. We get this intro and uh, just as he's like admiring the scenery, we get our first new character because in the background you spot this ninja person that's uh, hunting him. And this is our introduction to Su Ling. And they have, like, straight away they set the tone that this film is just going to go for it in terms of the fight scenes. Because this opening fight would be a final fight in a lot of other straight-to-DVD movies. And it's a, it's a fantastic fight sequence between two great performers. And it's the first time we get to see how the Kirby's are going to film and handle the action because, you know, they're very different from Jesse, Jesse's style. Like, you know, the camera moves a little bit with Jesse, but he likes to put it there and you get to see what's happening. But man, the Kirby's are like in there moving the camera around, following the, the, the action. And it just it added a different different flair to this movie just to kind of, you know, separate it again from the first one. But still that same cohesive type stuff with the characters and things crossing over. Yeah, and I think one of the side effects of that, because a comment that 
you and I talked about a lot when this film came out is that a lot of people love to say that this one feels more like a comic book movie than the first one does, even though the first yeah. one is actually a comic book movie and this is an original script because <laughs> there never was a sequel to the Accident Man comic. And I feel like what you just said about how they shoot the action is a big part of the reason why, because it makes every fight feel larger than life and a lot less realistic because they're doing such big over the top motions, but the camera is matching that energy. So it sort of enhances it, which is actually kind of cool. And I like it. And I feel like yeah. I noticed that a lot more with the rewatch than I did the first time I watched it. And Tzu uh, Ling is played by Sarah Chang, and she is just absolutely nailing it as this character. I mean, never mind the martial arts stuff of which she is just fantastic at, but her comedy timing for a lot of her dialogue is just perfect. Uh, just her physical comedy, too. Like when she just walks up to you know Fallon when he's sitting down and she's always like smacks him to ask for her money. So she just <laughs> She doesn't say it. She just walks up like, boom, boom, hits him twice and puts her hand out and just is very, like, even if she didn't say a word, you could still laugh at the way she carries things. Like when she points at, like when she points at him and she kind of does the whole, I'm watching you type thing. And, you know, I'll see you when I see you. Wonderful. And on top of that, she just fit right in. You would think she's been acting for years and years, in my humble opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. This whole sequence works for me because one of the things that I definitely noticed, given that we did the accident man episode a while back and now i've rewatched the second one i do miss the griminess of the original which was set in london and what i like is especially in this first half of the film you still get a lot of that from michael because he's very much still in that world and it's like i love his comments where it's a serious fight right up until the point that she almost kicks him into the television he then, you know, the whole thing then breaks and you realize that actually he knows this person and he isn't just complaining about the television. He's complaining about the fact that he had eight episodes of Bake Off still to watch. And that is the most British sounding thing I think I've ever heard an actor say in an action movie. It, it's just brilliant. And then he goes off the deep end about the fact that she breaks the, you know, the new 8K television, but also... You get this wonderful, well, it happens multiple times throughout the film, but their entire relationship is quite clearly an homage to Inspector Clouseau and Cato from the Pink Panther films, which Scott has openly said that's where the inspiration came from. It's not trying to be hidden in any way, shape or form. But that first sequence where he's trying to yell Flamingo and it goes <laughs> into slow motion as she jumps across the room, even before I'd realized what was happening, my brain went, it's the Pink Panther. You know, I just love that so much. Yeah. The the only other thing that I that it made me think of, too, was from uh, Sam Mohung's uh, Wing Chun classic, The uh, Prodigal Son, is when Ewan Biao asks his, his friend slash kind of uh, assistant to attack him at any time. And he starts beating the crap out of him with like wooden logs and stuff when he's not trained up. But that was a distant second after the pink panther and i was like i really like when our stars are actively involved in the production of the movie and have a say in things because then you start to see their their film taste and personality show up more in these movies and in the fight scenes and just the overall feel yeah and not to like to to dwell on this for too long but i will say 
I don't think you can actually see it in the frame, but I have the Pink Panther collection right there. I knew it was right here. <laughs> I knew it was close to me. And I feel like because Scott is considerably older than myself, but I grew up watching the Pink Panthers because of my dad, my granddad. And I feel like it was probably the same for him. I feel like the Pink Panther films especially did really well in the UK. Obviously, Peter Sellers is a fantastic actor. And I don't know why, but those films are just ingrained in me like as part of my childhood. And I still enjoy them as an adult, even with some of the stuff that hasn't aged as well. But overall, I still really value them as comedies. So it doesn't surprise me that Scott Adkins really likes them too. And I love the mm-hmm. fact that they're trying to repurpose the stuff that works and reframe them in a way that you could still get the joke and still laugh about it in 2022 when this came out. I also just, like you say, their interactions with each other are great. And then that leads to a flashback where he's trying to like convince himself and us that he is genuinely losing because she's that good and not because he feels guilty that he killed everybody that he was genuinely friends with back in London. And you get, you know, you start to get flashbacks of all of the assassins that he killed and you start to see that he's maybe not dealing with everything as well as he wants you and himself to believe. And it, it you know, when you also see the flashback of her at the bar and she kicks someone's ass and he's like, oh yeah, allegedly she's a descendant of Wong Fei Hung, which I don't believe was actually a real person. I believe it's just Chinese folklore, but it doesn't matter. It sells the character perfectly and it just, it just all works. That scene makes me makes me crack up number one because she's just beating the tar out of those guys but i just like at you know mike fallon's kind of nonchalant he just gets his beer and in, in, in the the clear mug and just kind of just spins the beer around as he's hearing all this chaos happen he's just like okay and he just goes to her like how much they pay you here you want to raise like he's just <laughs> uh this movie if anything i know um our you know good uh good buddy mike scott said it but this is like scott atkins the movie like it definitely seems when you see him when he's comfortable in interviews and just kind of being him himself this kind of shines through a little more than even the first one did which the first one still had some humorous moments but this one's way more kind of zany humor and kind of just bonkers humor i guess you could say yeah he's openly said that a lot of his influences like aside from the pink panther stuff but in terms of comedy This took a lot of inspiration from a television show called Bottom and a couple of other shows that starred the late, great Rick Mile. And I am I'm kind of mixed myself on a lot of that type of humor. Some of it I find absolutely hysterical. And I I personally, I love Rick Mile's work. He could do amazing, serious work and he could do ridiculously over the top, you know, comedy work. The film that he did Oh, with the same actor, they did a series and a film, which was also another inspiration. And I cannot for the life of me remember what the name of it is. So I'm going to look it up because that's annoying me. Give me two seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I am still listening to you, but I'm also just like failing to find the name of this film. (laughs) So I think I'm just going to give up on that one. I I can see in your face how visually pissed off you were that you can't find it. Just because it's one of those things that'll gnaw at you for a bit. Yeah, it will, because it's like, it's so obvious that that's one of the things it takes inspirations from. I mean, he did so much stuff. I'm pretty sure it's a film version. Okay, tell you what, people that really know his work, it's essentially he runs like a 
his own sort of weird hotel motel type thing. And it's very similar to like uh, Faulty Towers, but with a much more over the top sort of edge to it. Um, I cannot for the life of me remember what this film is called, but either way, it's quite clearly got a similar sense of humor if you were to watch it. And Bottom has like 180 plus episodes of that exact same style of humor as what this film draws from. And he said, you know, he watched it growing up and it would have been about the time that he was a teenager. So that makes complete sense. And I've been ranting about that for so long now, I've forgotten where we were going with it. But either way, the humor in this film. That's what we're, that's what started this conversation. Yeah, it, you know, you, it's definitely different to the original, and part of that is also because, as they've said themselves, Jesse likes to direct much more serious and dark projects, whereas he wanted this to be a lot more, like you say, sort of still dark, but with a very sort of satirical, humorous edge to it. I'd say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can see that in the different characters because the characters, like you said, they're more that too. I think is why people look at this and go, it's a really good comic book movie, even though, like you said, it's a completely or original story, not adapting anything that came before, but it's, and it's completely different in tone from the actual comic book. When you see how the comic book's drawn, it's oh yeah, not like this at all, but I think that's why we associate it with comic because it's super colorful. There's over the top characters. I mean, we have a vampire. We got uh well, a vamp quote-unquote vampire we got a kid running around in a onesie you know it's just crazy stuff that just lends itself to your more over-the-top kind of comic book style stuff and as this all unfolds we actually get my favorite aspect of the entire film which is the reintroduction of the one assassin that did make it out of the previous film perry benson's finicky fred and he gets a hell of an introduction because in the original film he was the guy that did uh gadget kills essentially like he couldn't ever take anyone directly he would use ridiculously weird ways of killing methods and he, you know he killed a football team because of uh, a thing that he did once and that's the success that he's been coasting off of ever since and in this one you literally see him getting thrown out of a nightclub so he stands up and retaliates by using a wrist mounted flamethrower to set a guy on fire and you're going oh okay suddenly he doesn't seem that much of a joke the problem is is that when he tries to take on the next two guys the flamethrower naturally fails and just goes and he gets punched in the face for his efforts but thankfully mike is there to save the day and uh he takes him home after figuring out what it is he's there for which that whole sequence just made me so happy because when the trailer for this came out the fact that they're brought fred back was a big part of the reason why i was so excited to see this because i thought their chemistry in the first film was easily one of the best parts of it agreed out of all the actors and characters in the first one he and finicky played the best off of each other like just the way they had like an easy back and forth and they you know like when he talks about in the first one you know weaponizing bandages and he's just like really fred you're gonna weaponize that and they just have that kind of playful back and forth and that fact that he was the only one that mike didn't want to like kill i like that that kind of played into this one and yeah their that their relationship or quote-unquote bromance as much as that word gets overused is like kind of the whole crux of the movie yeah i mean i'm pretty certain that the you're gonna say no to this question but have you ever seen the television series i believe it's on netflix uh now benadorm no 
I actually wanted to say yes, just to see your face and then go, I'm just kidding. No, I don't know. <laughs> well, for me, I was already familiar with him even before he played Finicky Fred, because he plays the character Clive Dyke uh, across a couple of seasons of Benadorm. He's not like Benadorm ran for a long time and he's not in the whole thing. But when he is in it, he is basically the same character that he is in this, minus the, you know, assassin-esque part of his character. So when he showed up in the original Accident Man, it was just like, how on earth are you going to blend in with this group? And they don't even attempt to. That's what makes it so good. He just sticks out like a sore thumb. And that carries on in this. I mean, the fact that, again, you get to finish off essentially the recap of events of the first film. And he like informs Mike that the Oasis is gone. You know, what did you expect? You killed all of our assassins and the guy that hired us. Funnily enough, clients don't tend to want to work with people that, you know, have that effect Wind up on. dead. <laughs> yeah. What makes that whole sequence even funnier is A, he admits that he's there because he's trying to find a woman that he's allegedly in love with. And Mike thinks it's a scam, which is just, of course, it's a scam, Fred. Come on. and. They go back to his place and they're like, right, you can lay low here for a bit. And I just love the fact that straight away, again, continuing the Pink Panther reference, he uh, goes to relax and then Su Ling jumps out of the closet and starts beating the crap out of him. Before he can like explain anything, Fred then kicks off. And I, I, I laugh every time I watch this, but the way she turns around and Fred's like, who are you? And then, <laughs> yep. She goes to kick him, and that scream he does is so hysterical. And that's just Fred taken out. And then Mike's like, Flamingo! Flamingo! <laughs> and it's, you know, this is not the time. It's such a nice Pink Panther callback because the amount of times Cluzo used to say that to Kato, it's like, now is not the time or the place. It's like, yeah, it's, it's so obvious, but I love it. Yeah, me too. That scene, it's one of those you know it's coming because you know she's going to show up eventually but the fact that it's it's fred and then when fred like asks her why did you do that she goes i thought you were with him or she goes i thought you brought to help because he's so bad at fighting like she's so mean and like rude <laughs> yep yep and I, I it's just it does lead to kind of well not a surprise as such but like to, to kind of jump ahead a little bit we get a montage essentially because fred agrees to help him out with his current problem which is you know an assassination he's struggling with and to his surprise fred's skills actually blend really well with a guy that kills people and makes them look like accidents because fred can do a lot of things that mike just can't he's good yep. with tech he's creative he can invent things on the fly and so they kill this guy without even having to get near him, which is, you know, if you want to make something look like an accident, that's kind of a perfect skill. So yeah, they work together and we get a montage of the two of them bonding and going and killing people while Su Ling is still trying to kill Fallon. And we get some hilarious moments, like when he goes to sleep and she just, her fingers come out from under the bed and you just see her eyes. And then <laughs> it wakes Fred up as he's screaming Flamingo. I just... That whole first half of this film is just funny. That's my one of my favorite uh, comedic moments when her fingers and then you'd see him wake up and you just hear Fred. You just hear, he's like, I gotta get some goddamn sleep. <laughs> and Fred's yep. just like, Ugh, and he just rolls over and goes to bed on this like most uncomfortable looking couch that anybody could sleep on. <laughs> 
and then they uh they buy a place called the shambles which is uh you know also has another term in england which means it's the slaughterhouse and it's a testing grounds for basically all of their random kill techniques and gadgets that fred wants to try out it also mm-hmm. has one of my favorite scenes because mike orders like a big flamethrower like a proper like tank on your back with a almost like rifle-esque look to it and it doesn't work like all of no. fred's finicky gadgets have at least some use and then mike buys this massive over-the-top flamethrower and it just doesn't work and he gets so angry about it and then it's just like oh now i gotta find the bloody receipt and i'm like oh that sounds so much like any dialogue that all of us have experienced when you buy something and it doesn't work where did i put the receipt <laughs> very true and it's a little subtle thing but i like that it's actually filmed as if they're recording and documenting these things to see what works and what doesn't and yes. I just like when like Fred's like making fun of him because he goes, that doesn't look very accident like, does it? And he's just like, shut up, Fred. <laughs> just the bickering back and forth makes their their scenes just really stand out to me in this one, because he didn't really have that in the first one. Like we said, the first one was more of a, you know, uh, revenge thriller type with comedic elements. And this one's just more straightforward comedy with darker elements. So I. And I think maybe that's where my, more of my comedic sense, you know, sensibilities lie, which is why this movie kind of clicks a little bit more. But again, it's like if the first one's an A, this one's an A plus, you know, one of those things. It's not like yeah. you're, we're not comparing crap to gold. So, yeah, I, I don't think in all honesty, having rewatched both of them recently, only a few months apart from each other. I don't think there's a wrong answer. If 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 you yep. like the first one better, cool. If you like the second one better, cool. You know, they both they're both different and I think in some respects I like the fact that they're different because instead of having a film series where you're watching the same thing over and over again, yes there's similarities, but they are different films, which is not always the case when you watch a film that is a sequel, which in and of itself maybe is worthy of praise. Correct. I mean, I love him to death and I will go to bat for him, but Rambo is really the same. I mean, Rambo, Rambo two onwards, because the first one is a completely different beast, but it's a similar feel, similar character. There's not that much different from two to three to four and then to the last one. But yeah, this, you get two completely different movies, but they feel cohesive because of the character overlap and uh, you can see from one movie how characters grow to the next, and whether you like the first one or you like the second one more, you're still watching some of the highest quality DTV action we're going to get. So, a win-win. Yeah, and you know the the like you say the chemistry between Fred and Mike gets a lot of room to blossom and grow, and the little dialogue quips throughout this montage sequence and. You also get that moment where Su Ling is also revealed to have like a nice streak in her because she is very friendly with Fred now that she realizes his role. And, you know, she'll make coffee for him. And, and he she basically agrees to help him find, is it uh, Lalo, I think is the name? Lalo, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of the person that he, you know, he can't find the girl that he's allegedly in love with. And Mike gets very annoyed by this, that she treats him so much nicer and kinder. And, you know, he's like, I'll have a coffee too. And she, when she hands it to him, she's like, I spit in yours, Fallon. <laughs> His face, he just looks down. He's like, I don't know if you did or not. So I'm not even going to drink it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you genuinely don't know if she's joking or not. 
Um, yep. and we also get a very important conversation, but you don't know it's important yet, which is when they have uh, a discussion about the weight rack malfunctioning to try and kill someone by dropping weights on them, which then leads into a hilarious stunt, I will add, where Fred goes flying across the room. But then they have a, an argument about whether or not the exploding suits that Fred has designed are, will work or whether or not the yield will be off and they'll just get singed. And that in and of itself is a great conversation that didn't need any payoff. But oh, man, that that conversation comes back at the end. <laughs> Most certainly does. And we will definitely get there. Um, I, I What I like about that is how it, it flows really well. Like we go from that scene of Fred getting, you know, knocked across the room and then he gets a new job offer and Fred's all into it. And Fallon being there longer knows that there's certain people we're not going to, we're not going to mess with. And this happens to be one of those, one of those families. So he tells them just deny it. Let's move on. We're not going to take it. And it kind of, that's the crux of what propels the movie into the second and then third act is that little bit. Yeah. You could definitely make the case that this is where the story for the film technically picks up. You know, the rest that the everything before this scene is kind of building up what is at stake because Mike is very much like, I finally have a mate and I, well, a couple mates because he, he includes Su Ling, even though she has a very different relationship with him. You know, I've got two friends that are actually around all the time. I'm have fun with, I like being around and and um, we're not dicks to each other we're not trying to kill each other and we actually are just normal people uh, well normal as in they go and kill other people which is again where the black comedy element kind of comes into it it's like i love decapitating people with you and splitting people's heads open with a step ladder etc but you need all of that because otherwise what's about to happen wouldn't really work because obviously they then get kidnapped by Mrs. Zuza, I think is how you pronounce it, because I, I still can't make up my mind if they're saying Souza or Zuza. So I've just I'm just committing to one. Yeah, I will just say how they say because it's spelled uh, Z-U-Z-Z-E-R. But everybody, even the main the main actress says Zuza. And I'm like, OK, it's uh, I don't care how it's written. <laughs> That's how I'm saying it. Yeah. And Fred also just before the next scene. I like the fact that he figures out that Mike is paying Su Ling to beat him up, essentially, because of the fact he doesn't know how to deal with the guilt about what he did to Ray and the, the assassins that he actually liked. Because I'm sure he doesn't actually care that he killed Poison Pete, for example. No, no. Uh, yeah, I, that little bit of dialogue is great, because like you mentioned earlier, we we see that Fallon is, well, we as our as the Watcher knows that he's letting Su Ling beat him up even though she's still in you know incredibly skilled but i like when fred calls out he's like you don't have to do that you're letting her win and he's like no mate she's she's great and then he's like yeah okay and like fred fred sees through it and then fred lays tells him like look you can forgive yourself like people fuck up move on like it doesn't have to you don't have to beat yourself up over it and it's it's funny that that's weaved into this dtv action movie that really at its core is about you know, finding a way to forgive your yourself for messing up, but then also why we need friends and, you know, chosen family, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then now that we've we've established that emotional connection, both for Mike and the audience, it then all goes wrong because Zuza 
comes in and essentially kidnaps them and like creates this false contract so that the person that they kill is actually just to lure them out. And and I will stress, even though I know people will tell me to forgive it, that whole sequence is uh, even the first time watching it. You know, I I watch Mighty Morphin Power Rangers once and always this week. And anyone that complains, too. anyone that complains about the effects in that fifty-five minute special, come watch this film and come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I won't lie. The first time watching, we talked. We we're gonna address that elephant in the room. Is yes, there were definitely budgetary constraints with this movie. There's a part of me that loves the fact that they said, fuck it, we're going to make the movie that we want, regardless of the budget. And we know that it might not look as good as we'd like it to. But there's also that part of me that's like, well, then maybe rewrite something so it doesn't have to be that exact same scene. Because it, if it's going to look like that, move, you know, try something different. Maybe. But that's always easy for us to say sitting here talking about it months and months later. <laughs> yes. And the thing is, not every scene has that problem like there are there are many effect sequences later in the film that i'm going to praise and the thing is something i wanted to point out is some of the effects in this scene are done by one company i don't know who it is because i i don't recall but but some of the effects are done by the folks on youtube called corridor crew yep and pretty much everything that they did looks pretty damn good looks really good <laughs> So, you know, I know why they couldn't do the effects for the whole film, but it does, unfortunately, it has a sort of, on upon rewatch, it has this unfortunate effect of making the worst segments stand out, because when you see a good segment, you're like, oh my god, that looks so good. So why does a bathtub falling from another floor look like they're both just stood in front of a green screen, you know? <laughs> Not only that, it looks like it stood in front of, like, 90s green screen. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> However, well, that's probably the most negative thing I will say. <laughs> not negative, but you know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the only thing I've hoped about since John Wick 4 has been such a big hit and that Atkins is getting is getting a lot more, you know, notoriety. Look, you and I both know it's not it's not going to be like he's not going to be in all these Hollywood movies that go to theaters and whatnot so i'm not even thinking about that as much as the guy deserves it i just hope that his future movies get a slightly larger budget to where he gets to devote the time to put the action in and that he can make scenes like this look better that's all i'm hoping for moving forward after you know john wick four for scott atkins <laughs> maybe well, a netflix series i that. mean yeah i mean the sky is ultimately the limit it really comes down to yep. whether or not producers want to make that investment i mean Sure. me given that there are so many former stunt coordinators and second unit directors that are now making the jump to being the director mm. i think we'll see scott in higher profile stuff but i've got an annoying feeling it will be in the same way that he it's in day shift oh where, i got what you're saying sure where he will be a big part of it and the thing that people talk about but he won't necessarily be the main character because I would love to see a world, assuming that, for example, Extraction 2 ends with the character still very much alive. And Extraction 3, can we have Scott be the villain for Chris Hemsworth to fight? Because to me, that seems like a no-brainer. But sometimes it just doesn't work out for other reasons other than just they exactly. don't want to do it. You know, 
there's a million True. and one things involved with scheduling and timing and budget and you know like you say it's easy for us to to say these things but actually willing them into existence is always a harder thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it took this this long to get him in john wick four where all my friends were finally like will you now shut up about this guy i'm like no i will not <laughs> yeah and to be honest like not to go off topic too much but people really responded to him you know they did and you know people that didn't know who he was which i think was deliberate was taken aback by how he could fight when he finally does turn around and fight as that character and i i knew he could do all that stuff and i still loved it and i also love that scott said in an interview that he was the character was so clearly inspired by sammo hung down to the fact that he might he did his sidekicks and his roundhouse kick to sort of emulate him and it's so obvious with the purple suit that it's the spl version of sammo and i love the fact that they were like oh i don't think chad did that deliberately and scott was like i'm sure he did it's very sure unlikely he, did. he didn't know that <laughs> no i mean the suit is damn near an exact copy of at the spl suit to the, the color to the vest everything so yeah Anyway, yep, no. In this yep, anyway, film, back to the movie we're talking about where he's the star. <laughs> Zuza has kidnapped him and this is where we get introduced to her henchman and her son Dante. And I I really like the sequence between uh Fallon and the big henchman guy who's desperately trying to intimidate him and failing on every level and to to me that that's the sort of comedy I love, you know. Yeah. And there's uh I know we had talked about in the first one. There's a lot of there's a lot of British style humor in there because certain things that Scott Atkins says, you were explaining to me what they mean off, you know, before we were uh, um, uh, recording. And then this one too, like there's just certain things that Atkins says that feel not like things I hear every day. Like you know, boy, you really are all flesh and no bash. Like just the way he says things and like the you know the butchers and all sorts of stuff. Like him and Fred keep that british aspect of the movie going which i really like because it's just it sounds so cool yeah i mean perry benson always comes across as that old-fashioned geezer from london and the fact that you're pairing him up with mike who is very much like a modern day version of that and they're both using a lot of uh rhyming slang you know when perry you know when when fred turns around and says well come on then let's have a butchers it's like i i've heard people that talk like that it, like i said it really helps that you like you said feel that british connection even though i personally don't talk like that i know so many people that do and you know it's so it, it works for me and they don't sound the same either like they're from different parts of england so that works um but yeah they're they're captured and this big guy's trying to intimidate him he's trying to desperately do anything like he's punching at him and he doesn't do anything and my my favorite bit is when Mike finally gets annoyed with him and he goes to punch him and Mike like catches his jaw, his uh, catches his fist with his like uh, neck and his jaw and just hurts his knuckles. And like you say, he just runs away, like whining in pain. And it's like, oh, all right, then you really are all flash and no bash. I, I like that so much. Because <laughs> it's just him laughing and like Fred's just like, they're going to kill us. And I like that at first, you know, when we find out why they've been kidnapped, because somebody you know, the hit that they, you know, passed on, other people didn't. And this woman's pompous, prickish, dickheadish son is, is the, you know, target and that she wants to hire a, a hitman to protect him. It's kind of a fun little spin on 
things too. Well, in, in fairness, um, I, she doesn't. At first, she thinks it was them that did it. But as Fred says, they have a rock solid alibi. We were in one of your clubs, and your CCTV will prove that. So, yeah, like you say, after that point, she's like, "Well, clearly, we need the accident man to find the person that's trying to be the accident man," which is a, a nice spin on again the formula from the first film, where instead of being the assassin trying to take out assassins. He's still an assassin trying to take on assassins, but in more of like a hitman's bodyguard type scenario, you know? Yep, totally. And, and also, that also gave, led to oh, one of my favorite, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That led to one of my favorite uh, finicky Fred lines when he goes, weren't we there for your uh, birthday? He goes, yes, sir. 21 again. Like, just, <laughs> <laughs> I like even in this, when they're like kidnapped, they're still laughing and cracking jokes with each other. Perfect action duo. Well, I think the thing is as well, like taking it seriously for a minute, you know, Mike has been in this situation probably multiple times in the past from the things he says, and he's, you know, he's killed hundreds of people. So I'm sure he's not that fussed. And it's very easy to write a version of this where Mike is cool as cucumber and Fred falls apart. But it's like Fred has lived in this same world potentially for longer. So yes, he's not gonna suddenly break out of the chair and fight them all off hand to hand but he's not just going to start crying because oh no you've threatened my life it's like you know give him half a chance and he'd have killed everybody there in a really weird way but he still would have killed them mm -hmm. definitely so it, it's nice that they did that and kept their you know kept them intact as far as their personalities go because I think it was really tempting to go too far over the top with Fred being like, oh, don't hurt me sort of thing, you know? Right. Because even in the first film, he still tried to stop Mike, even though he knew he couldn't, because it's one of the funniest scenes of the film where it's like, I, I understand, mate, but what else am I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> and he hits him with the phone book. It's great. Anyway. This leads to basically Mike agreeing to work for them after a lot of back and forth, and they keep Fred as basically insurance that he will do it. And then we get an unexpected scene in inverted commas, which is that we get the return of Big Ray, who is in Malta, and it turns out that it was actually Ray that tried to kill Dante and make it look like an accident. And, I, and, and the first time I watched it, I thought he did that deliberately to try and point the finger at Mike to make the repercussions fall on him because he knew that he was there. But actually, re-watching it this time, I've realized that that's, I don't think that was the intention. It was the fact that I forgot that Ray was the accident man before Mike. And so that's just how he was going to kill people. But he hasn't done it in so long that, as he said, well, I'm a bit rusty. <laughs> yeah there's uh we talked briefly last time about ray ray stevenson because there's way more in the first movie i wish there's a couple things in this one I, I know i said you know i would only say that one negative thing or you know about the special effects but i wish fred was in it just a little bit more just because they play so well off of each other but i understand why and i also wish ray was in this one a, a, a bit more but but man, man, when he turns in there and you see and Fallon sees him and he just points to the seat with his hands and doesn't say a word and Mike just sits down. I was like, that's why you get Ray Stevenson, even for a five minute cameo. He brings so much gravitas to it. Yes. Well, I, I, I got to be honest, me and you are both Star Wars nuts. And the 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 Ahsoka trailer that came out recently, the fact that Ray Stevenson is holding a lightsaber and 
going and just juggernauting his way through people. Uh, I don't even need a story. Just give me those scenes and I would be happy. I mean, it's Ahsoka, yep. so I'm, I'm watching it anyway. But if even if that show did not interest me in the slightest, seeing Ray Stevenson with an <laughs> orange, dark red lightsaber just was like, inject it into me. That is such good casting. Perfect casting. I mean, and just the beard and the hair, he just looks perfect. And seeing him on stage, he's he's trimmed down a bit. Unfortunately, we talked about on this one, he's he put on a little weight. He wasn't the same Ray that he was in the the first one. Maybe that's character bit because you know he's yeah. going to do some stuff. See, see, I've I've also you've kind of just said what I was going to say, which is that I remember that was a complaint that I personally had is that Ray doesn't have that intimidating presence that he does in the first film. But actually, again, rewatching it, I do wonder now if that was a deliberate choice because, as you say, the Oasis is gone, his team is gone, his entire influence in this world is basically gone. And he's just sat at home eating junk food because what else is he going to do? He's not a young man. He shouldn't still be an assassin at this point. And he's right. now got to essentially come out of retirement because he has no other choice. And understandably, he's very angry about that and upset. And it comes across very well in these scenes. Mm -hmm. Yes, very well. Like, you know, I nobody says proper English breakfast better than Ray Stevenson <laughs> when he's like talking to him about like, basically, I love that every single piece of food metaphor is basically how he's feeling about Mike, you know, Mike at Betsy and Mike's just sitting there kind of just squirming like, uh huh. but we get a little bit of levity and humor because I love when he goes, Fred and I aren't aren't doing anything what are you talking about and then he puts the napkin down and it's like hi Ry, it's fred and he's like fucking hell <laughs> yeah and then he tries to be like well look we are doing stuff on the side but it's not like we're breaking the bank or anything and then he flips the napkin over p.s we are in fact breaking the bank, the bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean Ray Stevenson in these films, his accent and his voice is so much of the character. I mean, not to be, you know, mean, but he does use the exact same character in RRR when he's playing the British colonel. Like we said, I think in the last episode, it's almost like they're like he's a descendant of him. And what I absolutely love is this means that he's done three films as a very similar character. And, the, and he still manages in this film, even though he's in it a lot less, to make a comment along the lines that involves the phrase British pound sterling. Because <laughs> he gets that rant, doesn't he? Where he's like, well, you know, the contract's nine million euros and that's uh, seven million five hundred and seventy six pounds and seventy five pence in real money. And I just I was dying <laughs> with laughter. It's like, what is it with his characters of being obsessed with pound <laughs> just because it sounds cool when ray stevenson says it <laughs> I, yeah, I genuinely think that's what it is <laughs> mm -hmm. so yeah we have that fantastic scene and then adkins has to run off because that's when they realize that dante has a tracker and also ray gives the basic spiel that actually you're not just dealing with me because i failed so now the money's gone up considerably and it's an open contract and all of your former rivals and competitors have now flown here with me. And these are all the people that are actually as good as you, if not better. And I love the fact that they tease that because uh, Mike's like, they didn't send a Yumi, did they? Oh, fuck, they did. And it's like, you've never seen that from him. Like in the first film, 
all the best people in, in England are there and he couldn't care less. But the idea that now he's got to deal with a Yumi and he's like scared. Because he's a bona fide fucking ninja. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> uh. And uh, that, to me, that just makes it work so much more than if they just tried to do the same thing again. And then he runs off and he finds Dante. And I'll be honest, this one, I watched it the first time, is when I started to struggle with the film. And on the rewatch, it didn't bother me as much. But I've realized I cannot stand Dante as a character. Not in a, I hate him so much that I love watching him get hurt way. I mean, I want to hit the mute button whenever I have to listen to him, not in a fun way. And I've realized that's a lot of my problem with this film. <laughs> yeah, it took me a bit to get used to the used to him. It was one of those things where, like you said, at first, in small doses, I'd be like, okay. But then as soon as like he be, you know, he swallows the the watch and then he's stuck with Fallon and Fallon's or sorry, Fallon's stuck with him. You're right. Whenever he opens his mouth, you're like, please, Mike, punch him again, please. That's why when he like knocks him out later, you're just like, thank Christ. I've been waiting for this moment the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, that's not a complaint of the actor. I know that this is how they wanted the character to be. And he does have, some genuinely funny lines that I also know were ad-libbed. You know, the, uh, jumping ahead a bit, but there's a there's a line he has later where he's like, you look like a melted Ben Affleck. That's a genuinely funny line from him. And if his character had been more like that, with him constantly giving cutting quips, I feel like it would have worked. But he spends so much of the film just complaining and not like dealing with what's happening in front of him. He would have been dead so many times, even when he knows the person stood in front of him is trying to kill him. And he's just like, you will not kill me. That's not how the world works. And I'm just like, my man, you are so thick. I honestly just want you to die. Like, you do not deserve the life you've been given, which I realize <laughs> is the point. That is how you're supposed to feel. But they do too good a job. <laughs> they most certainly do. <laughs> I mean... His singing, atrocious. We know that. Um, but I just, he's so incessant, like, this is my watch, and you're not going to take it from me. And it's just like, okay, whatever, dude. <laughs> Even though you're getting shot at and killed. And then I will say, it does make me laugh, though, when in that we're getting to it, because Atkins, Atkins gets there, and then the first, uh, the first, you know, hit, uh, hit person shows up, Freya Dupree. Don't don't need to go into details about her actress is a piece of shit, but the character. No, no, I because because I was really debating how to cover this sequence for obvious reasons, and I've come to the conclusion that I'm just gonna say how I feel because I feel like I I hate how I feel about this, but this is genuinely one of my favorite assassins in the whole film, and one of my favorite fights in the film too. I agree. Yeah, and it and it pisses me off to no end. That I can't really give props to the people involved, um, but you know what? we'll me. give props to everybody else involved, from the camera operators to the lighting. Light. We'll give everybody else yeah. props except the human piece of shit that was there, and that's all we got to say. Yeah. Well, no, I, I do want to talk about the actual scene itself because, of course, from a from a choreography point of view, I love the introduction. Oh. 
the comic book sort of overlay of the name of the character like that was a nice touch because again very yep. different to the first film and the fact that she comes in as this gun-toting sort of angel of death and she's throwing frag grenades she's got flashbangs she comes in with an assault rifle and then switches to a handgun and then switches to one knife and then to another knife it's like she is just loaded up like the punisher and the fight that they have is so good and again hearts off to the choreography because i know there were so many different people who choreographed these scenes so i mm -hmm. I, I have no idea which one of them did this bit but nope. the mixing of fallon style of like traditional sort of taekwondo martial arts with a bit of uh mma style but also scott adkins style and her style is like trying to mix in the the close quarters combat realism in inverted commas of like an actual sort of tactical fighter but halfway through she changes and it suddenly turns into an homage to the raid too and i love that because a it's so visually different to the fight he had with Su Ling earlier in the film. Mm -hmm. And it works so well and it's so enjoyable. And again, it's got a lot of energy in the way it's shot. But then when they go into the kitchen, it just completely changes and it ramps up. And you can't tell me that that whole sequence isn't just a little tribute to the Raid 2 fight in the kitchen with two people with two knives, you know? Exactly. And it's got uh, one of my favorite Dante bits because I love when they're fighting and all of a sudden you hear the pan uh, the pots and pans and he's just looking over. He's like, <laughs> I'm like, uh, and I love that we feel the same way Atkins does. And, and Fallon's just like, what the hell? And then when they're fighting, just he gets hit in the head with a pan and he's like, what the? F <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. He's like, well, move your fucking head. And the head, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, again, if he was like that all the way through the film, I think it would have worked better. The other thing I like, because this is the only assassin it applies to, she has history with Fallon. And yeah. the two of them don't actually want to fight each other. Like, they have a respect that none of the other assassins he meets throughout the film has with him. And they, they talk about the fact that they've been competitors on contracts before. And they both, at different points in the fight, offer the other one a chance to just leave. And I really like yeah. that. And unfortunately, she doesn't take it and she dies very gruesomely. And this is one of those effects, folks, that we were referencing that looks fantastic and was done yep. by Corridor Crew. Corridor Crew absolutely killed it. When I first saw that happen, I was just like, it's one of those kills where you're like, whoa, like the first movie's violent, but this is, okay, we're going here with this one? Because to this point, you know, there hasn't been, I mean, there's been some heads lopped off like that one, but it didn't look as good as this. And it was just like, over-the-top blood splurting and a good mix of practical with cgi so that's what you use it for that's where your money goes and that's i just wish those guys like you said could have done more yeah and i mean like you say the re one of the reasons why it looks so good is because it was shot practically and then they kind of salvaged some stuff that didn't work with cgi and that is a perfect use of it at this budget level in my opinion yep. this is also like during the fight this is also where one of Scott's signature moves, the Giver Kick, makes an appearance. I don't know if you spotted it. Oh, of course. I love that because in a fight that is like with a, an opponent that is trying to fight you realistically, I love that they make them so visually distinct by having him do something as ridiculous as a Giver Kick to like sort mm -hmm. of just give that little sort of extra flavor of, no, I'm a lot better than you when it comes to fighting. 
True. And it's also one of those like Atkins knows he's like, it's been a while since I've I've busted this out for, you know, for something like this. I'll do it for my uh, fans because they want to see it. (laughs) And also something that I often don't give enough credit to, but this film in particular, it stood out was this fight has a soundtrack to it that sounds like I'm watching an early 2000s film. And I don't know if that was just me, but I, I loved it for that exact reason, because it feels like such a throwback to the type of fights that we used to get in that era, you know, with the, the caliber of people that were around at that time. The, every fight scene feels like it's trying to give you a callback to some other fight scene that you've seen, but with its own sort of twist on it. Yes, correct. Yep. And I like the fact that each fight kind of has a distinct look in terms of color and lighting, because this one's super like kind of uh, like purples and pink you know, uh, neon lights. And uh, there's a lot of thought that went into it more than just how can we make it look cool from a, you know, standpoint. Yes. Let's make the movie, let's add everything we can to make this movie look even better. Yeah, every, well, almost every fight is visually distinct from one another. Like the next assassin that is almost immediately like run into um, is Yendi, as you said earlier, the vampire, who's not really a vampire, obviously. But again, I really like this character idea. But he has the same problem as Freya, which I'll get into in a second. But the actual fight is great. This is also where Dante's stupidity comes to the forefront because he has that hilarious, hilariously bad um, exchange where he offers Yendi money to kill Fallon because he doesn't like Fallon. And Yendi's like, that's not how it works. And he's like, it works how I effing say it works. And he's like really cocky and walks towards him and it's like, He's trying to kill you. Are you like suicidal or something? Because, like, <laughs> you know, he just immediately has to be pulled back by uh, Mike. And I'm just like, just let him die, man. I, I know Fred's life is on the line, but he's beyond saving at this point. He is this kid. Yeah, I guess you can't you can't save stupid. <laughs> no, but however, the actual fight that happens is fantastic. And again, speaking of the visual distinctiveness, whilst they do have a bit of a hand to hand sequence, they then have a knife and an axe versus a bow staff fight and i feel like even though it's not a bow staff it's like a metal pipe covered in rust but it is a bow staff we don't get a lot of bow staff fights anymore because i feel like they got so overused in classic martial art films but also in like the 90s director video films people kind of yep. stay away from them unless your name is donatello and you're a turtle <laughs> you don't you don't really see a lot of them now so i like that because we know Scott Adkins can use a lot of martial art weapons. I mean, I think he did do a bit of it in the first Ninja film, but to see it in a film that's going to get a lot more screen time in people's lives, it's a nice touch, and it and it breaks it up from the other fights that are around it. True. And actually, he used it in the first two Ninjas. Remember in uh, Ninja 2, when he's fighting Kane at the end, he starts with a staff, and then that gets cut in half, and then he's got the sticks. Yes. So, but yeah, and I liked that they're being open and obvious to us that I love the like kind of slow motion scenes where you see the bow staff get rubbery and whippy. And it just looks, I'm like, I'm like, that's classic Hong Kong flick right there with the, you know, so who cares how it looks? It's cool. And yeah, it's just a different feel, different flair. He gets that taken away and then he uses, you know, he takes away one of the big uh, machetes and then it's a machete versus ax fight. And it's, it's just a nice little bit. And there's some cool camera movements. Like while they're squaring off, the there's like a drone shot. or I, I know it's probably, not, I don't know, but it looks like a drone shot where the kind of camera goes up above them and kind of goes around. And I'm just like, huh, interesting. Like 
I, I like the little visual flair that they were trying to add just to kind of separate this from all your other DTV fare that comes out. Yeah. And he kills Yendi and they kind of have a bit of an exchange at the end when he dies. But this is also what makes this film different to the first film, which is where I feel like personal preference is going to come into it. They've introduced two new assassins and they were introduced in essentially their fight scenes. And when the fight scene is over, they're dead. Now, contrast that with the first film. All of the assassins that were trying to kill Mike were in the film from the word go as characters and had time to develop themselves right up until the point where he did eventually kill them in the last third of the film. And I think this is one of the reasons why when I watched it originally, I was very much like, I like it, but I find myself preferring the first one. Now, some of that is also because the people playing the assassins in the first film were people I knew, which is an unfair advantage. But in this film, the fact that they get introduced, have a cool fight, and then die is sort of like they don't have any room to do much, really, you know? Yeah, I thought that too at first when you mentioned it when we talked before about X-Men 1, but the more I thought about it, if if we cared about these characters more, then Fallon would have more weight on his conscience about killing people that he had friendships and relationships with, or just gives us, the viewer, the fact that we're focusing on him and these cool, crazy characters come in and then they go, we don't have to worry about them. So yeah. I get both sides of it. And I think, like you said, it's just personal preference on which side you fall on. Yeah, this also leads us to a conversation because Mike essentially takes Matey back to the shambles. We did skip over (laughs) the scene where he goes and fills him full of laxatives. But again, it's a Dante scene. I don't really have much to say about it. No, it's shitty. Yeah, quite literally. And uh, he goes back to the shambles. And again, the whole conversation doesn't really serve anything than to compare their monstrous upbringings, like their horrible parents, quote unquote, with one talking about Mrs. Souza and the other one talking about Big Ray. And it's a, it's a nice little sequence. But again, if you took it out, it doesn't I, I wouldn't miss it. The scene that we get with Fred, though, when Mrs. Souza and the guy who's now got like a brace on his uh, arm from where he punched Mafallon and failed was hilarious. And she's trying to threaten him with the story of St. Anthony. And she's looking at the painting and it ends with that lovely like yeah i don't think that's going to happen to you though when it's like okay that was a nice sequence and i really enjoyed that and it gives the actor something to do because like you say from this point on fred's basically not in it which is a shame but this is also where su ling turns up and actually decides that she's going to help fallon and we get that hilarious moment where she's like oh is this where you kill people and he's like i'm sorry what and it's like, oh, you know what I do? And she's like, well, yeah, I'm not stupid. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not stupid like you because she's still mean to him. But <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, we also get some of Scott Atkins' best like physics when she knees him right in the nuts. I love it when he's like, he said, no, not shocked. Like he's got that like cracking voice. And it's just like, all right, one more little hilarious bit. And then, uh, yeah, I like that she asks him, she goes, maybe I could be. Uh, do you think I could kill people? And he's like, with your temperament, I think you could. But then we see kind of the more evolved side of Fallon when he goes. But once you start going down that road, I don't know if it's the road you want to go down. And then she's, he basically tells her, like, you're a good friend. And I would don't I don't want to see you get hurt. Like, And I kind of like that little bit. And then 
we get who's the what's the guy silas i think was that the oh yeah i think his name is silas i only refer to him in my notes as the strangler as a wannabe brad pitt (laughs) yeah yeah and his name is silas but yes he is uh he is introduced as a brad pitt lookalike that um (laughs) strangled somebody for saying that he looked fat oh because he was a model wasn't he was it a uh, like photographer or something maybe yeah i think yeah because saying that he looked fat and then he strangled them (laughs) and never looked back and i I remember i remember straight away thinking like the problem with this character at least in terms of how he's introduced is you've just killed a barbarian that lives like a vampire and a military tactical specialist oh no the guy that strangles people how scary and literally as you finish that thought or at least i finished that thought we then get the introduction of Poco the Killer Clown. And I just remember thinking, I know this character's going to show up because it's literally how the film opens with that cold, ah, how did I get here? Well, let me tell you. But I'm still just sat there like, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't buy what you're selling, mate. <laughs> what about you? What did you think of Poco and Silas? Uh, Silas, I could give two shits about. Silas was there just to give, you know, Su Ling a, 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 somebody that was a real prick to fight who wasn't going to, because we know he's no match for Mike Fallon, but the Poco, I, I don't know. Something about, uh, you know, the way Bo Fowler played it. It was creepy, but also like over the top funny. But I just, you know, he's got his little dum dee dum dee dum dee dum dee dum. And then he's just like, bum. Like the way he gets super serious while being crazy is. You know, kind of stood out to me, and it's just it's a cool look. So, yeah, I was totally. I'm, I'm the thing is, is again because I've watched this film three or four times in total. I think now I keep going back and forth on him. I think the biggest problem for him is not it's not him. Like I agree with you. Like Bo plays the character well. The problem is, is all I can hear and see is half Pennywise, half Mark Hamill Joker, and not quite nailing either of them. Which isn't his fault, because those two clown-like characters are such massive influences on everyone that tries to do something like this, that it's inevitable you're going to compare them. But the fact that he does that that deep, growly voice, and it's like, well, that's Pennywise, but then when he does the happier, like, oh, I'm Poco the Clown! It's like, okay, now you sound like Mark Hamill. You're kind of not helping yourself here. (laughs) By the way, Scott, that was a damn good Mark Hamill Joker, dude. That was really good. Well, if I if I wasn't like kind of half full of cold, I would do a proper poker impression because that is half the problem. I don't find that voice difficult to do either. And I love that that Bo just went with it and fully committed to the oh, character. Yeah. I feel like that's not as difficult to do as trying to be a deadly serious assassin that lives in the world. Just going over the top is great fun and I love it. But that's not what like doesn't work for me it's everything that follows it because gotcha they then give you that moment of like he can throw this cinder block around because he takes out silas who should be dead after being hit by that thing like his skull would have just but anyway <laughs> that side it's a comic book movie we can live with it but yep. he then gets that revelation that he can't feel pain which was an interesting idea but not being able to feel pain doesn't just mean that your body can ignore 
being broken or smashed or snapped or getting you know hitting himself with a baseball bat like 10 times and hearing his skull crack it's like yeah people that actually have that condition are statistically likely to kill themselves before they get to like 30 because they don't feel pain so they don't know that they're in danger and they don't know they're currently doing something so sure. that whole character i have a real like problem just suspending my disbelief but that doesn't mean that his fight scenes aren't cool and i don't like the fact that he really commits to the role of just you know i'm sure. the clown <laughs> <laughs> yeah i fall on the side of I understand that's a real condition. I feel bad for those people that have it, but at the same time, I'm, I don't want realism in my accident, man. So I'm fine with him smashing somebody with a, a cement block, and then Silas gets up to chase down Su Ling, and I'm fine that he can hit himself over and over again. And really, it's Fallon who has to, you know, break things for him to really start to feel it. I guess there's a part of me I just turn my mind off at that, but I see where you're coming from with that, and uh, it opens my eyes a little bit more to it because yeah i honestly it doesn't it didn't like grip me immediately like oh yeah people actually do go through this stuff and they can hurt themselves very badly because they don't feel pain so and and don't get me wrong i'm not saying that like that's the reason i dislike it either oh sure i've watched it four times and i I cannot make up my mind if i like (laughs) him or not like i keep every time i watch it i feel different so again it's it's not a complaint it's more just a he feels so out of place compared to the rest of the cast. And I feel like every time I watch it, I just, I just, I can't make up my mind, you know? I'll play devil's advocate. I'll be the Liam to your Mike Scott. I'm like, so, so the quote unquote vampire who drinks blood and knows the, the type of blood that it is by the taste. <laughs> a, a crazy killer clown doesn't fit in with that guy. <laughs> yes, because the vampire is quite clearly not a vampire, and you have no way of knowing if the crap he's saying is true. Okay, gotcha. That's, All right, that's Fair the enough. difference for me. Like you okay, can gotcha. you can portray yourself as a vampire, but the mm-hmm. character of Mike Fallon knows that that's not real. Whereas Poco the clown, I know that this is a me problem, but it just fills me with so many goddamn questions of like, how in earth? Would he actually get near enough to anyone to kill them? Because he just radiates, I'm going to kill you energy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's an excellent point. Plus, it doesn't look like he's washed that clown outfit in years, so he probably, you'd smell him a mile away. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, I don't know if you've ever seen this film, but literally last week I watched a film called Stitches, which stars Ross Noble as a killer clown brought back from death as an undead killer clown. Watch it. But the thing is, is like having that in my head this time when I was watching Poco, it just made it even harder to just commit to Poco because <laughs> I'm like, I just watched a film with another killer clown that is like so over the top with its kills and its gore, you know? All right, gotcha. Okay. All anyway, right. we spent way too long on that. Way the too action... long on, on Poco. The action's great. <laughs> the action is great. Like, no, genuinely, it is great. I mean, we get intercut between the fight between poco and mike and sue and silas and they're so different that it works cutting back and forth between them usually i don't like it when films do that because it's just annoying because like you want to stay with one particular fight but the fact that they are so different like one's more of a traditional martial arts fight and then the poco fight is like mike is just trying everything he could think of to make him feel pain and it also gives me my favorite callback to both the first film 
but also all the way back to the 80s with Painful. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, I, I also love it. It gives us a chance to see all these crazy things that he and Fred were kind of testing out in, you know, against dummies, against a real person. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the cool saw blade bit and this and that. And, uh, and the, the fight, like, Bo Fowler gets thrown. I'm assuming it's him because he's a stunt person as well as an actor. But and there's, there, there might be some some doubles. I'm sure. But man, the that whoever's playing the clown at that time is getting thrown through drywall. Is getting thrown into clocks. Is getting thrown into kitchen cabinets. Is getting <laughs> thrown onto kitchen tables. It's like I'm like, geez, that poor that's that some person really earned their uh, their pay that day. Yeah. Yeah, no, like I said, the actual action between them is great. And as far as like the comic bookiness of it goes, it does fit. Just yeah, for me, Poco the Killer Clown, and even really to a degree, the Strangler, they feel like they're from a completely different world to the assassins of the original Accident Man. But that's just a me thing. I still enjoy yeah. the fight. I still enjoy seeing, you know, Mike Fallon kick Poco's ass and figure out a way to hurt him and constantly trying to up the pain levels. I mean, he gets electrocuted. He gets a circular saw blade through his chest. He gives him about 20 knees to the groin. And then eventually... I, I what, did feel that. Yeah. <laughs> and what I like about it, and, and the main reason why I do enjoy that scene, is because of how he does eventually kill him, which is that oh, yeah. Fred's invention that we saw earlier was failing to work. He finally gets to trigger... And it drops the weights on him and just completely snaps his neck. And I thought that was such a great payoff. Yes. I also do like the fact that it didn't do it on the first first try, too. And he was like, fucking hell, Fred. And then it just as it falls and breaks his neck. I just love the kind of world because Fallon's just like, oh, well, hey, it did work. <laughs> yeah. And, and on the flip side, we've got Sue, who has some great moments with Silas. Because aside from the fact it's just a fun fight anyway. but once it kicks off properly, again, you get that same energetic camera motion. And I love the fact that she gets out of being strangled by a clearly stronger opponent by breaking his fingers. And, and you see them just bent out of shape. And it's like, <laughs> now I do say, I do think again, like the way he could just reset them and just go back to fighting is a bit like, oh, you know, it's like, surely you could have done a bit more with that. But it does give us that great moment where she picks up a chain, shows off how good she can wield it, and then strangles him to death with it whilst holding him up with her leg. It it just makes her look like such a badass, and she gets her first kill. So it's like, I, I can forgive the finger break because it, it leads us to that, you know? Exactly. Yeah, we get to see some cool, like, traditional kung fu forms and, like, how skilled she is with a, with a uh, whip and then to use that and it's a cool kill too and while this is happening we we actually got some actual licensed like songs you know what i mean so there's like, yes which i appreciate i there's a part of me that whenever i'm watching uh dtv or any i mean really any movie this this the the score and any chosen music help add to it or can take away from it and unfortunately a lot of atkins earlier movies the music kind of takes away thankfully lately since accident man and working with uh you know jesse uh jesse johnson a lot of those soundtracks have been good and getting great and now he's getting like video game people coming in to do scores so it's really it's getting a lot better but it was really cool to have those kind of just you know kind of cool 
poppy British sounding songs that are from not from bands that I've ever heard. And I was like, I got to check these people out. And, uh, you know, it's just cool to have that going on. I'll be honest. I do like the soundtrack for most of this film. Those particular songs that you're referencing, I don't actually, I can't even remember them. And I only watched this film yesterday. Sure. But that's in comparison to the first Accident Man that got the jam licensed music and had a song specifically written for it. And I'll be honest, yes, you could argue that you may not have heard of the jam either. But from my point of view, the jam were like massive. You know, everyone has heard of the jam, especially growing up. I mean, they were around my dad. They were more my dad's sort of generation, which is why that music works for Mike Fallon as a kid when he's like Mm -hmm. being chased by all the bullies. But I think that again contributed to me going, the second film doesn't quite have the same feeling and the lack of that sort of music doesn't help. But again, what they do have works really well for the tone that they're going for this time. It's just that sure. it's it doesn't stick out enough for me to go, oh, was that a licensed track? Oops, I didn't even didn't even know until you just said it. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and and whilst all of that is going on, we get everybody's favorite character, Dante, waking up and uh, shitting in a bucket for a good 10 minutes straight. Whew. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that Scott said they were asked to cut it and they didn't. Like, I like that they stuck to their guns. It is ridiculously gross and it's meant to be that way. But it does give us a pretty damn good payoff, and it gives us one of the best Scott Atkins gifs we've ever had of him giving the thumbs up with the big shit-eating smile when he's like, I found it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, it's it's the same type of humor that you find in Bottom, which is what he said a lot of it was inspired by, so it makes complete sense. Um, and also, one thing I forgot to, to mention is the shot of Scott Atkins breaking Poco's arm backwards and the fingers yep. still move, which again... It's another corridor crew effect. <laughs> and a really damn good one. Yep. All of that work. After all of that, they think it's all over, uh, but it's not because we finally get the introduction of Ayumi, played by the great Andy Long. And his entire, like, he is not in this film much. Like, he is, I think he's in this film less than Big Ray, but man, do you remember while he's on the screen? Scene stealer for sure. And also, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that he is the choreographer for this stuff. Like, he he choreographed yes. all of this sequence. Yep. Yep. There's uh, there's actually footage. I think if you go to, at you know, the Art of Atkins, or Art of Atkins, <laughs> Art of Action on Atkins' YouTube channel, they actually have some of the hotel room previs where he was working yes. with, with Andy Long on it. And from the minute he shows up at Ratchet's, just everything kind of just elevates from you know we get the actual flame thrower gig which we know it's not going to work but he's going to threaten him with it anyway yeah it's a good bluff it is a good bluff and then you get just i mean oyumi just looks cool like the way he yeah, just he does. drops the sword drops down i mean because get let's be honest a ninja in this could look fucking stupid <laughs> you know they could have made it they could have went totally ninja and been like silly like he looks like he's in pajamas he looks awesome I, I've I've watched him before. I've watched his YouTube stuff, but my God, does he look? And I know they've sped it up to be, you know, but my God, the man is precise and super fast and just agile as all hell. And his fight, as soon as it takes off, it one of my favorites of last year. 
I, I will be honest, like there's a lot to say here. And the first thing I do mm-hmm. want to address is the fact that it was sped up. Because I, I must admit, I'm usually pretty good at spotting when they do undercranking, at spotting when they film something in like a 22 or 23. I couldn't yeah. tell that this was undercranked until they said it. And I'm convinced that that's because the only bit that does have the undercranking is after Mike says we're not done yet. I don't think the first half of the fight is undercranked. I think it is just that second bit where it feels like, and I, and I remember thinking this and I was so disappointed when I found out that it was undercranked because that to me feels like how every Scott Adkins fight was 16, 17 years ago. And that's yeah. nothing he can help. So to me, I'm happy that they undercranked it because that feels like him going, I'm still the king. You're going to overtake me one day, Andy, but it's not today. <laughs> he busts out every single kick that he was ever known for. Like That is the most acrobatic he's been in any film for a long time. Since like, since like Boyka or, or, uh, you know, yeah. Undisputed four was the last time he was really in, which he fights Andy long in that too. Uh, but yeah, no, it just, I mean, the whole look there's, you know, as we saw yesterday, power powder there's power you know power powders <laughs> back in full force <laughs> just the way kind of andy long carries himself like oh oh yumi knows he's a badass and that he knows that atkins kind of not fears him but you know is like oh shit this is the one guy who could give me who could make my life super difficult right now and i like when Su ling's like i will fuck you in the lung and he's like <laughs> and then he just kicks her and knocks her out and you see it's not cool for her but guess what we also we pay to see Atkins fight and we get to see that. But also that's an important part of the character building because she has consistently been kicking Mike Fallon's ass all the way through the film and she killed Silas. So when she's like, I will fight him, you're expecting that to be a fight. The fact that he takes her out in one punch is like, oh Christ. Like he is on another level to everybody else we've seen so far. And also I genuinely want to know who wrote this, whether it was Andy, whether it was Scott, whether it was in the script. But I love the fact, given how many references Scott likes to put into other films, the fact mm-hmm. that he says to Mike, I wonder if I could kick your ass. And my brain went, is that a perfect weapon reference? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Because <laughs> I'd be very surprised if it's not. I would be too. And I really like when he, you know, he kicks her and knocks her out. And I like Fallon just looks at him and just like, you're going to pay for that. And he's like, we'll see. And then it just. And it goes music. And I like that they pick kind of a more heavier, you know, guitar. Yes. Sound soundtrack for this. It, it, it fits. There's a, there's a bit where there's a couple kicks that Andy Long throws in a, in a row. Like he does, you know, like it's hard to even explain what they are. Cause if you look at, you know, the art of kicking or the uh, Eric uh, Jacobus's Kictionary, I haven't memorized all 300 kicks. Names. <laughs> How but, dare you? <laughs> right but he does like a kind of spinning kick and then he throws a front kick right after and then he does a spinning roundhouse that misses atkins face by like an inch if that like it's barely like just barely misses i know like when you train in martial arts and stuff like that you don't you try not to hit people and you have people who are constantly in my semester when they're first starting and i'm telling them to punch at my face and they're punching five inches away i'm like no no I'm telling you to punch here. If I get punched, that's on me. I should be moving. I told you to do it. And then, so I know how difficult it can be to get that close and wait, but man, just their timing, you can see why Andy Long was picked for that. And it was just, 
other otherworldly next next level fight scene yeah the fact that he doesn't just beat mike in that first half of the fight he literally takes his jacket off of him and puts it on himself and mike can't do a damn thing about it and he's just stood there like really that was it you're supposed to be this legend like you're the accident man and that was that was really boring you know i, I love when characters do that it's like you're not just disappointing you're boring you know the fact that that's when Mike is finally like, hang on, mate, we're not done. And then, like you say, everything that happens next is just like blink and you'll miss it because the speed at which they go. But e even though it is undercranked, the choreography is so complex that only two people at the top of their game could pull that off. I genuinely would be curious to know how many takes that took because I'll bet that they did most of that in the first one or two takes because... I can't see them having the energy to do that multiple times. No, no, I can't either. And I can see that coming after doing the first part and just kind of getting more and more in sync. And you're right. After you can't do that after a 10 hour day of fighting, like how well they're, how fast they're moving, how, like you said, it's not just kicks. I mean, they're punches. They're throwing those things. It's not like, you know, they're just doing a typical karate punch. They're, looping punches and not just one like you know ayumi throwing like multiple punches and kicks back and forth i also like how that part starts when they kind of square off and ayumi's kind of like he feigns the punches like what and then he feigns a kick and then atkins just like we're moving on and it's just bit after bit i like it slow-moed down just just the right amount i'd really like to know the shot where right before that before he takes fallon's coat when he does a roundhouse and a Yumi does a roundhouse underneath and smacks him right in the face. I, yes. I, I just want to know, I want to be, did you tell him to hit me? Well, just once, let's just do one take where you, where you, where you connect. Cause how there's no fake leg there. There's no, <laughs> cause it's, they're both in frame and you see his foot was smashed. And I'm just like, ouch. I would imagine that they just said, do it because that is the bit that Scott mm -hmm. has said consistently in a lot of interviews for many films where he's just like sometimes you if you want to get the shot you've just got to let yourself get hit and yep. act you know or react yeah if the case maybe yep this fight uses slow motion perfectly it mm. it uses slow motion to show the impact but also when there's a crazy awesome kick you're like oh we want to see what that looks like and it's it's great that there's kicks that are fast but also perfect slow motion so and also hats off to andy because as good as he looks when he's winning he makes scott look so good when he's losing like huh. scott is moving faster than andy but i suspect that that requires andy to move slower but to be able to do that to a degree that looks as good as it does when there's going to be some slow motion applied to it like that takes a level of skill that not many people have and i know you know this is not a surprise to anyone people that listen to this show people that are in the industry they all know how good andy long is and scott adkins doesn't need an introduction either so it just shows you what you could do when you've got two people no matter the age uh they can still pull it off and deliver on some stuff that is just next level but also from a story point of view mike fallon wins now he doesn't win because ayumi does the dishonorable thing of once he realizes that he's messed up he immediately goes and grabs his sword, which, of course, Mike can't really do a lot about. Now, of course, in the first Accident Man, he fights another character who's good at martial arts who has a sword and does manage to take the sword from her. So you're sort of thinking, well, there's a chance, but also Mike's just killed like 
four other assassins. He's absolutely shattered. And it took all of what he had to just stand up to a Yumi. And he's he doesn't even try and get up. He's just, he's knackered. He's dumb. And that leads to what originally I was disappointed by, but now I kind of like it because they established quite precisely Mike won the fight. So I don't mind so much that the actual solution is as Ayumi goes to kill him, he gets full of lead by a shotgun blast off screen. And then Big Ray comes in and he's like, well, that's enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, I have I have a, a couple of friends that I've turned on to Atkins that watch this and they like texted me and they were like, I loved it. I just wish that end fight would have been longer. And I was like, I agree. There's a small part of me that says yes, but also. The fact that you wanted more showed how successful they were at what they gave you. And yes. if the fight did go on longer, you could also, we've all seen those. There's been the fights where we're like, man, it was still good, but it did go on a little long. And I know that's that's almost sacrilegious to say, but there is also something to be known like, we got it. It ain't going to get better than this. Let's just let them want more. And therefore, they'll keep focusing on what we what we gave them and not what we didn't. So, yeah. And to be honest, this next scene is one of my favorites because it is the scene where the two men finally have to reconcile. And there's so much said in the silence and in the gaps that I, again, you could easily miss. But like Ray says one of my favorite lines and you could look at it in two ways. You could look at it as he's just saying like a British slang but I don't think that's what it is. I think he genuinely, in that moment, finally admits out loud that he thinks of Mike Fallon as his son. And I love so much that line where he just looks at him like, we're killers, son. Like, that, yeah. the, the way he says it is so powerful. It's like, he is still doing what he thinks is best for Mike. And mm -hmm. it, Mike has to be the one to stand up and say, no, I'm the reason and your way of thinking is what fucked me up for so many years and i realize that now you're wrong and the fact that ray has to deal with that whilst he's holding a shotgun is kind of like ah, um. <laughs> and it gives us one of the greatest yells of <laughs> the yeah. last how many years <laughs> which for obvious reasons neither one of us are going to recreate but um nope. yeah that the fact that he he does kind of basically accept that what Mike is saying is right is such a nice moment because I really didn't want to see those two fight and I didn't want to see them kill each other or him kill Ray or whatever the that version would have looked like. So the fact that he just basically fires his shotgun off, has that big scream of rage, which was very similar to the first film. But then mm -hmm. once he's done that, he's just like, he's reset and now he's back to how we remember Ray from most of the first film. And that's a, such a nice moment. It's like, okay, fine. We had our issues. We're done now. What's next? You know? <laughs> How about we get our little finicky bugger back? <laughs> and that leads us to the best bit, which is that, oh no, you know, those are Fred suits. And you could see the cogs turning in Ray's head already. Fred suits. <laughs> you should put them on there. <laughs> you should put that on there. Yeah. I also like when he comes out and he goes, and he goes, come on there, you little creature. And then he puts the, he like, show us the thing. And he puts, opens his hand and like, just the look on Ray Stevenson's face that this guy's got a handful of shit. Like it made my kids crack up laughing when they watched it with me. They were just, they, they loved Ray Stevenson. And, <laughs> and uh, 
just <laughs> but I love it when he just stomps on it. And he goes, "Let's get you home." And then I like that they pull up. I like that Ray kind of hangs hangs back because this is you know Fallon's got to take. Oh, good. There is one other aspect of that scene that I I I like, but it feels it it kind of falls flat, which is that when he breaks the watch, you finally get the reason why Dante cared so much about it. It wasn't just he was being difficult. It's like the one thing he says that I feel like has any kind of emotional resonance, which is that was the only nice thing my mother ever bought me. And it's not really anything nice. And it's, it's like a, it's a it's a cheesy Casio like, you know, calculator watch. watch. Yeah. And the fact that that's the only thing he has of, from her that he values just shows you how broken their entire relationship has been. Yep. That 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 there was the nicest thing that my mama ever gave of me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sorry, carry on. You were you were wrapping up the end nicely. Oh, no, I was just saying, yeah, they they go back. You know, he's got to get Fred. And I like that Atkins is still, there's still that part of, of Fallon that will take a jab at somebody. And he goes, I could always show her, you know, the, you know, or, or says something like, you know, you, you know, shitting, shitting yourself. He goes, I could always show her the, uh, uh, the video. You know, he's like, there's, as they're walking back, he's like, this is where Fallon knows he's kind of got the upper hand. So he's kind of back to being slightly more dickish and smarmy. And he just, he gets there and then they exchange Fred. But I, I like that wait when he turns to Fred, he's like, Come on now, Fred. Like there's a part of him, he's like, he's happy he's got Fred back. <laughs> and then uh as they just walk away. I oh sorry. You can I, take from, yeah. I, I will also say that Mrs. Souza has one of my favorite lines in the entire film here. Because, you know, Dante, the second he's like back with them, he's desperately trying to get them to kill Mike because he still doesn't like him, even though he's the reason he's alive. Like, it just adds yep. to how much you dislike this character. And the mother's, like, telling him to shut up, and they're speaking in Italian. And then eventually she's like, Dante, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kill you myself. I am sure that nine million euros would help me with my grief. And <laughs> the way she says that line is like, yeah, I don't blame you. He is such an insufferable character. Even, you know, it's like when they say, you know, oh, he's the type of person only a mother could love. It's like, no, he doesn't even appear to have that. <laughs> nope, he does not. Nope. And I absolutely love when they get back and like Ray's got the phone and he's just like, those were your suits, Fred. And, then he's <laughs> and we get a great explosion. It's it, like you said, one of the best payoffs that could have been throwaway like you think that scene earlier is just them being funny he's like i stitched it into the into the lining and he's just talking about yeah. all the painstaking work and put, put an explosive like, it's not gonna work Fred. and a receiver in the yeah. other yeah he's like it's not gonna work fred it's gonna it it's it's just gonna singe him a bit and then his head comes <laughs> flying over lands in front of them and they're all just like yes and i love that Fallon and Fred are just jumping around hugging each other like two <laughs> like schoolboys who just witnessed the coolest thing they've ever seen. Well, it, it doesn't even end there because then Ray pulls out his phone and they do a big group selfie shot with the decapitated head in the background as proof of death. It's like they're not so even they trying can get to the hide 9 them. million euros. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> or wait, the 7 point whatever it is pounds sterling. <laughs> well, they, they do keep calling it 9 million euros and I do... True. I do love the fact that they ended it with um, 
the fact that Mike's like, you know, now that we've got the nine million euros, we can essentially open up our own outfit again. And they've left they've left the door open so perfectly for an accident man three. And I hope that it gets made. And I hope that Ray and Scott both get sort of the spotlight again, because like you say, Ray is 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 the highlight of both films. I mean, there's other good stuff in both of them, but I really hope mm-hmm. that if they do a third film, we get Ray in it a lot again, not like he is in this film, which I get is probably because he was just busy with other stuff. He makes a lot of films. But right. if they do a third one, I don't know if they will, because it would require a, a very interesting storyline to justify it, because they've kind of already yep. done two very different things. God knows what the excuse would be to do it for a third time, but I'm sure they could make it work. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it would be great to have Fallon, Ray, and Fred just kind of doing crazy shit, you know. Well, and Sue. And Sue, yeah, correct. Yeah, Sue Ling's there too. So yeah, those four to get, I would actually love to see Ray and like Sue Ling arguing, you know, like kind of button heads and then Fallon's got to get in and be like, hey, hey, hey. Like I could just picture that working really well. I, I, in fact, now you've said that, I can see the dialogue in my head because Ray is not particularly kind to people of a different persuasion to himself. True, and she, she does not <laughs> suffer fools of any kind. So, yeah, actually, <laughs> yep, I could see it being more like how when she first is with Fallon, like when she brings the tea, she's like, "I spit in yours," and like give it to Ray. <laughs> but I could see Ray drinking it just despite her because Ray's, you know, <laughs> yep, yeah, so, yep. Uh, yeah, there has to be the right the right story. Atkins and Stu, you know, Stu Small, let them work on that while they make other stuff. That's fine if they want to. But yeah, we got a great, we got a a happy a happy ending. Uh, Fred got to meet Lalo, which lasted for about a week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I loved that. I love that they gave us the surprise happy ending that Su Ling found Lalo and that she was. Uh, essentially stuck in like a CD club, which is what they said might have happened. And then, oh, they finally got together and they lived happily ever after. No, they didn't. It lasted about Bollocks. two weeks. Because <laughs> <laughs> she found out what he did. And she was... But I just, there's a little bit in there I really like when Lalo comes walking in and it pans over to Fallon and Ray and like, just it's a bit between Atkins and Stevenson where he just, kind of hits him on the, you know, where Atkins like hits him on the, on the arm, like, can you believe this shit's happening? Like it was real <laughs> because they, because they both made fun of him and Lalo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, being, being real. So it's just, it was a great ending and I couldn't have asked for, you know, like I said, it was one of my favorite movies of uh, last year. So, well, yeah, same. I mean, in all honesty, though, you know, compared to some of the other stuff that we got, there were so many good films last year and Accident Man 2 still managed to stand out. I mean, don't get me wrong. My favorite film of last year completely destroyed at the Oscars. So I was happy, but Accident Man 2 was a close second to one of my favorite films of the year. And that wasn't including RRR or, you know, there, there were so many that in any other year, I'd be like, that's the clear winner. And they all came out in 2022. It's like, let's have more years like that, please. <laughs> Uh, we're kind of on our way, I think, this year, too. True, true. So, yeah, it's a great time to be a film fan right now. Yes, and it's, you know, action films, the future looks bright, the future looks orange, and it's great. <laughs> Agreed. 
So I think that's about going to wrap it up for now. Is there anything else you want to add before you end the episode? No, sir. It's just a super fun movie that I think if you like action movies, if you like kind of the, you know, mid nineties, you know, eighties kind of buddy comedy, there's that for you, but there's also great action and uh, some fun, crazy characters and some gruesome death. So what more can an action, an action junkie want? Yeah. And to be honest, there's a lot of films that we cover on this show where the action's good, but the story is kind of what we end up talking about. This film is kind of the opposite. There is good story. There are great character moments, but this is one of the few action films that we've covered where genuinely go and watch it, even if you've just listened to us talk about it, because the action's fantastic and it is the reason to watch the film. Yep. And you're just blessed with having a good story with fun characters and some laughs along the way while watching some of the best choreographed and filmed action you'll see either dtv or in theater so enjoy and with that said i shall hand you over to the me of the future who will let you know what is coming next and here i am the me of the future so very quickly first of all thank you to andy once again for coming on and uh doing what he does which is talk about films with me i know that andy the next time we have andy on or the next time i introduce andy I might actually be introducing him as someone that also has his own podcast. So I wish him the best of luck with that. Him and another guest of the show, Chris Barreras, are going to be doing a Star Wars podcast, and I'm very much looking forward to that one. Also, for those people that were listening to me fail to remember the name of the film that I said was very much like Bottom and inspired a lot of the comedy in this film, that film was Guest House Paradiso, and it was the film that was basically bottom you know it's the same characters essentially which i think is why i was struggling to find it but if you've never seen it i would highly recommend going and looking it up and watching the trailer because i think just seeing the trailer will clue you in as to where a lot of the more extreme comedy that is in accident man 2 came from because that is 100 percent the influence that you're that it shines through very loudly in accident man 2 (laughs) Next week, I will be joined by a brand new guest, and we will be talking about the Jean-Paul Lee-led classic Night Shooters. I'm really excited for you to hear that episode, and it was originally supposed to come out closer to my actual Jean-Paul Lee conversation episode, but we had to reschedule the actual recording of it. But I'm glad that you're going to be able to hear it next week, and I look forward to hearing the feedback on that one. And if you've never seen it, go look the film up. It's a great film. And I think you'll really enjoy it. John Paulie gets some cool fights in it. And there's a pretty good story and some decent dramatic moments from the rest of the cast as well. But until then, guys, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and I will see you in the next one. On the action!